Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, Adweek's agency podcast of the year. Every episode, we listen to and learn from people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shy Day New York. All right, well, thank you for tuning in. Our guest today is Tim Staples. Tim is the author of a fantastic book on modern advertising and communicating called Break Through the Noise. He's also the CEO of Shareability, a story tech company that drives explosive growth for major brands and celebrities. And he was named one of 11 innovators who are disrupting Hollywood by the rap. Did someone say disrupting, Tim? Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast. Thanks, Rob, man. Happy to be on. Thanks for having me. Buddy, your book. Uh, I mean, uh, as I was telling you before, I mean, I'm taking notes on this thing. <laughs> it's really amazing. Now, now technically, uh, it's a break through the noise, the nine rules to capture global attention. So uh, it, it, I, I just love how you organize stuff. And I should also let all the listeners know that today's that day in New York where we had the, the major storm. So you may hear sounds of the storm behind me. And it's also Super Bowl week. So we have a, it's a very, uh, you know, interesting week this week. So why did you write this thing? Yeah, you know, we both live in the, the, the brand world. And obviously, there's been a lot of change. And, and I really wanted to start to, you know, put some parameters around what this all this madness means. And I think the way that I would kind of give, you know, an outline of the book is that, you know, as I was thinking about this world and I've lived it in a bunch of different ways, as I know we all have, is the big change for me is like 20, 30, 50 years ago, all the megaphones of society were all owned by big corporations. And by that, I mean television and radio and all the big uh, pipelines. So if you wanted to be famous, right? You had to go through a very orderly system. As my friend Aubrey Marcus says, you had to have a sifter with Rupert Murdoch. Or if you're a brand and you wanted to get your brand message out, you know, you needed to do the traditional 30-second spot, and then that gets paid for and blasted out through traditional media. And, you know, it was very expensive, and it was very exclusive. And then the internet and social media came along and just blew all that up, and it put a megaphone basically into your pocket. I mean, these things... These new smartphones are basically like a movie studio. Uh, now that everybody has one. And so the good news is that now everybody has a megaphone. And the bad news is that everybody has a megaphone and they're shouting into it constantly. And so the book and, and really my career has been about, you know, how do you break through this noise and get your message heard? Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting too is that you're not a digital native. I'm certainly not a digital native, but your book was kind of the first time I saw the whole new landscape really clearly. And mm -hmm. just a few things I'll point out, we'll, we'll dive into some specifics, but like just a few ways why this book is worth the price of admission. First and foremost, I like the way you've categorized the classic virals from, you know, kind of, you know, Charlie bit my finger and uh, Gangnam Style and that good stuff. So that's really cool. I love what you did with understanding the platforms, you know, because I do think that there's a tendency to, oh, we have our element, our video element, we're just going to blast it on Instagram, Facebook, and it's like, like they're all the same, but you've done a brilliant job there, which I love. And then I think you've given, you know, some really smart ways to be really effective. And you've got the, you know, you, know, you, you can certainly back it up with great examples. So if I were listening to this podcast, I would probably turn the podcast off and just buy the book now. 
<laughs> Thank you. And it's not going to get any better from here on out. So maybe that's the move. But I, I appreciate that, Rob. And I think the thing that I tried to do was make it something that everybody could relate to and not use and fall back into all the buzzwords that we're all in, infected by in the big brand and kind of agency world. Just how do we think about this with a clear head? And how do we start to think about the steps we can take to make things better and to be more effective? But, you know, I think that uh, just starting out, because I feel like I have this conversation at our agency all the time, which is, okay, so like, what are the icons? I know that if I say Lemon or Cadbury Gorilla or Think Different, you know, for a number of people in the agency world and in the client world, we are all going to be speaking the same language. But I might say Charlie bit my finger and I don't know if everyone's going to know that. Uh, or if I yeah. say, you know, the, the stratosphere jump, you know, the Red Bull jump, you know, it, it starts to get a little bit murky. But I think what is great about your book is that suddenly, okay, well, here are the, here the seven to 10 you need to know. Let's just go. These are the seven to 10. We all have to know these. And I knew them, which was great. You know, some of them I didn't know, but man, a lot of them I knew. I think the core premise of the book is that you need to be shareable. And what does that mean? To me, it means worthy of a share. And it's all this process, like we're all busy with our lives and social media is this super noisy place and you're getting bombarded by a million messages from a million different directions. So what's going to make you stop and take notice, right? And that bar is really, really, really high. So the idea of being shareable is about how can you be unique and how can you be valuable? And those are kind of the two of the core concepts in the book that are kind of spread throughout. But how do I stand out? How do I be special? But how do I also remember the core insight of being human, which is, it's not about me. It's about the person that's interacting with this content or with this ad or with this messaging, right? I can't think about myself. I have to think about them. What do they want? What would they want to share? Not in my share worthy, but what would they want to share? And then how do I give it to them in a really kind of unique and special way? Yeah. And I think you, you have this beautiful insight about the new kid's bedroom wall. You yeah. Know? Maybe talk a little bit about that. I, I know I feel like I have to remind you of a few things because <laughs> you haven't like lived the book like I have over the last you know, 48 hours. But well, let's start with this, Rob. Who, what were the posters on Rob Schwartz's 11-year-old wall? 11-year-old. I don't know. 15. I feel... I, Whatever I feel, defines the era. You know, I feel like there was, there was Evil Knievel in there. Yeah. Uh, I feel like there was the famous uh, Farrah Fawcett poster. Exactly. You know, between Evil and Farrah, I think that was uh, <laughs> where it was at. And that's a good mix. Like, you know, coming up 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was all about sports and, and, and women. You know, if you're a guy and then there was a different perspective, if you're a female. But like the idea of the bedroom walls, you know, when we were growing up, there was no internet. So you'd express kind of your hopes and dreams on your bedroom wall. And that took the form in a lot of cases of these posters of sports stars or models or actors or actresses or people that inspired you or whatever that might be. And I always like to think of social media today as your bedroom wall, which is you're going to share the things that define who you are, right? And it's a little bit different today. It's not necessarily a poster, but you're going to share the images, the videos, the concepts, the activism that defines who you want the world to see you as, either, either who you are today or who you want to be. So when you think of that share button, you're not just thinking about, oh, is this funny or do I like this? You're thinking, of, will this define me in a certain way? Will this piece of content make me look funny? Will it make me look smart? Will it make me look interesting? 
And so that's the experience that's happening. And that's the bedroom wall, right? If I go share 50 things over the course of a year on Facebook, or if I'm liking things on Instagram, or if I'm getting collabing on things on TikTok, these are the things that I'm interested in, yes, but they're also the things that define me. And that's a really powerful mentality when you think about it. And understanding those dynamics are essential if you want to make content and ads that people actually care about and that they want to share because it's all interconnected. Well, absolutely. And I think it, you've just you know laid out a high degree of difficulty, which is if you're not in the business, am I going to share advertising with somebody? You know, that's going to be a pretty high bar. So The bar is so high. I, I always joke that people on their social feeds are like a serial dater on Tinder. They're just swiping and swiping and swiping, right? And, and, it, and you have like literally one to three seconds to grab someone's attention. And if it looks like an ad, people are gone, period. Yeah. If it looks like an ad, if it smells like an ad, they're gone. They're not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. So I always look at like campaigns that kind of broke through that noise and indifference and actually left a mark. And when I start to think of things that really have kind of inspired me, you know, there's a lot of things that are in the book, but one of the campaigns that I always think about is the Heineken build a bar campaign. Mm. You, you're familiar? Absolutely. Yeah. And just the idea of like these different perspectives and these people that are naturally in conflict and they brought them together, they built a bar together. And at the end of the day, you know what? They could talk about it. They could have a beer about it and they could actually like start to like come to a, a point where there, there is some consensus and, and they want to have a conversation that maybe they wouldn't have wanted to have that morning. And that was really powerful to me. Like, and I think especially in the time and day of age that we are in, things like that really resonate. I love the uh, always campaign, like a girl. Mm. I just thought that was so powerful how they showed visually from small examples some of the stereotypes that have you know held people back over time and how we propagate those things. And a lot of the things that I really get inspired by are these things that have kind of a bigger message that are just presented in a different way that make it really shareable and interactive, but lead you to a much more thoughtful, big picture place. And those are two that I've really kind of resonated with. Well, I think those two, the Heineken example, the build the bar, always like a girl. What was also interesting about those two was that they felt like social experiments. Yeah. There was a little bit of fly on the wall, you know, we're watching a casting session uh, with always, but there was also this, there was something about them that they were somehow above the pedestrian, that they were, they were, they were trying to communicate bigger ideas, not just pedestrian ideas. One of the concepts we've talked about in the book are though, there's a whole chapter, chapter two on the shareable emotions. Mm. And I really go pretty deep in kind of the science of how our brain is wired and how we think about content and what are the emotions that provoke us to share. And there are dozens and dozens of emotions that provoke us to share, right? Some of them may be negative emotions like anger mm. or, you know, there's a lot of incitement emotions. It's funny, like sadness, although you can get these great pieces of content, but if they evoke sadness, you just shut down. Yeah. And there's been a ton yeah. of great content that should have done better if it would have ended in a better place, but it just causes you to shut down. So you don't want to share. But we really focus and identify what I call the five shareable emotions, which to me are all positive, unifying emotions that puts you in a state where you want to share content. And we've built kind of our whole business around those five shareable emotions. And it's funny, as you start to understand them, they are amazing on their own, but they also start to intertwine and kind of become multipliers for each other. Um, well, yes. Well, I will lay them out for our audience. Uh, happiness, awe, empathy, 
curiosity and surprise. That's exactly right. And, I got and it so right. Go ahead. <laughs> well, no, so interestingly enough, all right, so the Heineken thing, you know, falls under empathy. And, and by the way, I think this is a powerful section of the book. And as we talked about earlier, the Red Bull Stratus, that idea, I think everybody who was experiencing that was saying, WTF, this guy is going to fall from space, you know? Yeah. And, and you talk about connecting to uh, the brand, you know, promise of Red Bull giving you wings, you know, this is something I wanted to ask you about. You know, where does, I know we're going to talk about headlines, but where does the tagline, the brand promise fit in with these five emotions? You know, Red Bull gives you wings, I think actually does, Stratus demonstrated that. But are you seeing something happen? Or are we still writing taglines? And are they relevant? Yeah, well, it's funny because I, I read something you wrote about being a copywriter is basically the best training for being a CEO. What, what else am I going to say? No, no, but I, I, it really resonated with that. You know, when I, when I was growing up, my dad had a small ad agency in Milwaukee. And so I wanted to get in the ad business. And I had an in to be a copywriter at Leo Burnett. I went to school through journalism school, University of Missouri, and through the advertising department. And I was a copywriter. Like, I want to be a copywriter. And so I think that there's a tremendous skill set there that plays into the bigger picture of being a CEO. What, what's the role of taglines yeah. Uh, in, in, in this new world. So, so my, my, my belief is that in a world that is so noisy, where everybody's default position is to tune everything out, is that I think the new superpower of this age is story. Mm-hmm. And not just story in like a traditional sense around the campfire, but like how do you tell stories that are actionable in a digital age? And how do you tell stories? It's almost like a Hollywood mindset of story. How do you tell that for a Silicon Valley delivery system? Right, which is like the Hollywood mindset meets the Silicon Valley delivery system. And so the bigger story of these brands to me is everything. And so I think when you really nail that story at the high level, which is the skill set, by the way, that copywriters have been doing for decades. And when you say, hey, Red Bull gives you wings, that's an aspirational story that's at the heart of the brand. And then, then everything cascades down from that and can go in 50 different directions. But Red Bull is an example amongst very few that have actually figured that out. And then also how to translate that brand equity into the digital world, which even some brands that have figured it out haven't figured out that connection piece. And so I think the copywriting part is more important than ever. I think it just takes on a different dynamic in terms of how you translate it into this new environment. Yeah, very good. All right, well, I want to come back to these five emotions of sharing, and I want to talk to you about the Super Bowl for a second. So again, happiness, awe, empathy, curiosity, surprise. I mean, as I read those, I was also thinking, those are pretty good for Super Bowl spots. Yeah, there's no doubt. And you'll see them, like the really successful ones, you'll see them. I I love going through campaigns and seeing which emotions we can spot. And just a little backdrop on each of them. So happiness, you know, that's pretty self-explanatory. But the way I think about it is there's so much negativity in the world right now. And on social media, like 80% of it just like bums you out, right? Mm -hmm. Bad news coming from all different directions or people's opinions that may or may not agree with. So the idea of putting a little smile on someone's face is really, really powerful. And especially when it comes from a brand where you don't expect it. So when I talk about happiness, it's almost like unexpected joy. And then the second one is awe. And for me, awe is that kind of whoa moment, like, whoa, whoa, what was that? It's an emotion of respect. And in the early days of the internet or, you know, six, eight years ago, even, 
you know, the Red Bulls were doing of the world were doing all the awesome content, right? Like right. Want somebody in the space, right? The problem with that type of content is eventually be like, all right, you're trying to outdo yourself to the point of where mm. do you go now? Like, you know, you've, once you've launched someone in the space, what comes next? So a lot of that content that's really resonating, at least with me, is now more the Good Samaritan content. Right. Where people are helping people in a way that makes you go, wow, that's awesome. Mm. Empathy to me is it's similar to sympathy, but it, it, it's a different emotion. It's all about putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and that kind of shared human connection. Mm. Curiosity is really the more interesting way to say, you know, education. <laughs> right? it's, where, <laughs> it's, it's where you're presenting information in a new way that makes it new and different. And this is one that this is like a sleeping giant. Yeah. Uh, if, if you execute it right. One, one of our most successful things we've ever done, we did a piece on public education and how the public education system is broken. Prince EA, your Prince. Yeah, with Prince EA, who's one of the most talented young guys I've ever been around. And you would think that would be incredibly boring. And it's done like a half a billion views and it's in like 22 languages around the world. But we took information, we put him in a courtroom and we it's, argued. It's great. Today, right. And, and because of that, and because it was presented in a way that people could relate to, it just blew up. And so I think curiosity is like a really strong one that most people miss. And then the last one is surprise. And that's really about unexpected result. And a surprise can be a multiplier to some of the other emotions. And you'll see it happen a lot in a lot of these campaigns. So like in the Heineken, for example, you know, the build a bar, you know, empathy is obvious, right? You're putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. I would, I would argue there's a bit of awe in that concept of like taking you're like, whoa, what's happening here? And wow, they actually did this. And they brought these diverse people together to kind of share a beer. There's definitely some curiosity and you're learning a little bit about the world. You're learning a little bit about human behavior in the process. It's given you a little smile at the end that there's some hope and maybe even a surprise outcome. Like maybe it didn't go down the way you want or you expected the way you expected it went down the way you wanted. So you know, maybe they touched on all five of those in some way, but empathy was like kind of the core driver of that campaign. And I think if you could go by any of the successful pieces of work, including stuff that you've done yourself or with TWA, I bet you would find some of these emotions at play. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's so much to talk about, but we're running out of time. <laughs> the surprise thing is interesting because I want to connect that to what you refer to as giving up the goat. Yeah. And I think this is a very disruptive notion for where we are in traditional advertising moving to this you know, modern moment that we live in. And some of the work you did, and I'm speaking specifically about the Cricket Wireless that you did with John Cena, the surprise, you basically... To get me interested in watching, you said, here is the surprise. I'm going to give you what's going to happen. John Cena is going to bust through the wall on these people who love John Cena. They are going to be surprised by it. And you gave it away. You gave it away in the first three seconds. And of course, you know, we're trained to have a drum roll, then hit the cymbal. We're trained to have the fuse, then the detonation you detonate in the first three seconds. So maybe talk a little bit about why in this modern world we got to give it away so early. This is some of the biggest battles we've had in the last five years. Because, you know, as you said, people are trained to do something a certain way, and that's the way they believe is right. And now we're in a new medium. But basically what we talked about earlier, right? When people are rolling through their social feeds, you have, best case, you have three seconds. It's probably less in most cases. So mm. you have to grab their attention. When you think about story structure, traditional story structure, that video, basically what happened, if you look at traditional story structure, we identified a bunch of John Cena fans. 
We brought them in for a live interview where they had a chance to be part of the John Cena store on Cricket Wireless, right? And they got to be an ambassador and it was this heightened role. They told us why they loved John Cena. We went through these really elaborate and kind of silly exercises where they were yelling stuff out. John Cena was watching the whole time. And then when just when the time was right, he burst through the wall, surprised them, it went crazy. They all hugged and it went madness, right? And so the traditional story structure would have been told just like that. But if we would have told the story that way, when you came in, when you're going through your Facebook feed, when that launched, you would have seen and open it up on a Cricket Wireless store with a bunch of people sitting there and someone getting called up to the front, starting to talk about why they like John Cena. And you wouldn't have taken the time to figure out, you know, four people out of five would have bailed in the first four seconds. Mm. So that concept of giving up the goat is basically you have to give them your best stuff first. You have to, because if you don't, you're never going to get them vested to watch it all. But when you give them the thing, now the experience is like John Cena jumped through the wall. Someone went crazy. The reaction's nuts. Now someone's like, whoa, what happened? Now I'm hooked. Now I go back to the Cricket Wireless store. I'm meeting the people. The story builds. We're talking about John Cena. We got the big arc. He bursts through the wall. Everybody goes crazy. And then it comes to a conclusion. And now I've watched that. And that video, by the way, the watch through rate on those videos was insane. Mm. Um, it was one of the most successful videos I've ever been around. It did hundreds of millions of views, but it really created goodwill. And there was nothing in that whole campaign that had anything to do with the phone or wireless services. But meantime, if you saw their numbers below the line, everything went through the roof, right? Like all the awareness scores went through the roof. All the sentiment scores went through the roof. All the conversion numbers that converted better than any ad mm. they'd ever run before in the history of the company. And it was just because we got people vested. They went for the ride. They had positive emotions mm. with the brand and with the company. And then all this good stuff kind of happens underneath it. Well, it's, it's really fascinating because, you know, as, as I've confessed recently to the agency, I love to watch these reaction videos. So I don't know if you've seen them, but, you know, oh, there's the usually, you know, somebody who, you know, has no, you, you wouldn't think they would, you know, even care about, you know, listening to, uh, you know, some old school classic rock. And I just love to watch them, you know, be surprised like, oh, my God, you know, I love Creedence Clearwater Revival, whatever. They've never heard Bad Moon Rising. Like, this is the most amazing song ever. And what I noticed was that, you know, after I was read your book, I kind of went back and was just thinking about this. The goat is given away on these reaction videos. Yeah. We see, there's one show I love, this, this young woman, you know, loves to watch these classic rock videos. And her expression's amazing. In the headline, you know, it says, watch Jay go nuts on um, CCR. Yeah. So the punchline's already there. Yet, that's what hooked me. And then I'll watch it, even though I know the punchline is going to happen. The way the human brain works is it wants to connect and understand. And when it's overloaded with information, it basically taps out. And so you need to, like, simple is good, right? And so if now you've given me something that's simple that I understand that I actually like, now I love going along for the journey of that ride, right? And I love those, like, watching kids and then elderly people react to these different stimulus. And you think about, like, the hair bands of the 80s, like, that concept being introduced to, like, a nine-year-old today is just amazing, right? Oh, my it's, God, yeah. It's, it's it, so good. And the same thing like Billie Eilish being presented to someone that's 85 is, you know, but emotion wise, like, what are we dealing with? Right. There's an awe component because you're like, whoa, you're having this old person, young person see something they've never seen before. Curiosity of how are they going to react? Yeah. Um, there's a surprise element. It makes you smile. All those same things are at play. 
it's really just amazing. The other thing that we should talk about while you're here is I think how you're flipping the purchase funnel. Yeah. So this, I thought, again, intuitively, I knew you were right, but it was just surprising. So, you know, maybe just talk a little bit about, again, how we're trained through traditional media with, you know, the evergreen purchase model and how social and modern comms flips it. Literal, a literal disruption of the purchase funnel. Yeah, I think I think the biggest change is that we've lived, and most people that came up in advertising have lived in a broadcast era and a broadcast mindset. And in a broadcast mindset, you own the pipelines, right? And you can buy the pipelines and the and the megaphone. And it's all about products and features. So like me as a brand, I'm beating my chest. I've got the best such and such for this category. And now I have very good creative people telling you a product story about that and why it makes sense for you. And I think that works great in a traditional media world of television and radio and the, the past. I think now with social media, everybody's competing at the same time, right? So if you're a brand, you're, con- you're not only competing with other brands, you're competing with their friends and their family and anybody, mm. that, you know, celebrities and influencers, and you're competing with all of it. And so if you come into that ecosystem and have a broadcast mindset, you're going to fail because it's like going to a cocktail party and you see somebody come across the room to you and they come up and start selling themselves and bragging about themselves and saying, hey, can I borrow some money? You're going to tell them to get the hell out of there. Right. Right. And so now I think everything has to flip to an engagement mindset and an engagement mindset says it's not about me. It's about the audience. Mm. It's about the consumer. What do they want? And how do I give them into it a unique way with my unique voice that they're going to see as valuable? And now we start a relationship. And so I always say, like, if you start with the dollars, you'll never get to the relationship. If you start with the relationship, you'll definitely get to the dollars. I like your your bakery analogy, you know, the the samples. You get samples on the street. You get people hooked, right? And now you're having a conversation. So that, that flips the whole funnel. And it's something that I think about 1% of brands really understand. And it's just the idea you said, which is like, basically, if you can come in, give away the free samples, if you can build the love, if you can be at the cocktail party, providing value, being fun, interactive, building a relationship. Now, when you're heading out the door and, oh, you lost your wallet and you need to borrow $20 to go get a cab, those people are going to lend it to you because you have a relationship. And I think same thing applies to the funnel. If you build the relationship up top and now they enjoy the John Cena video and they engaged with it and they shared it with their friends and they're part of your ecosystem. Now, when John Cena pops back onto their feed and says, hey, you know, I hope you enjoyed it and blah, blah, blah. And hey, you know, if you go here, you get 20 percent off with the John Cena deal and be part of, you know, never give up fan base. The odds that they're going to do it go up tremendously. And so, like, if you hit the top of the funnel, all the magic happens at the bottom of the funnel. And it's just human behavior. Yeah. And and like I said, I think that still it just sounds so simple, but I, I feel like very few people understand that. And then how do you segue this, you know, again, staying with the funnel, the top of the funnel about awareness, it's used to be, you know, I hate to use a war analogy, but it's basically carpet bombing. That's the way it used to be. And I think your, your book starts to suggest that maybe the, you know, the awareness starts smaller but it can grow fast. Is that kind of how to yeah. think about it? Yeah. The thing I'm obsessed with is what is the narrative that can unlock exponential growth? And by what that I mean is like, how do you build what, what I call story IP, 
Mm. But how do you build story IP around these brands that is like thinking like a Hollywood mindset of creating IP that then you can world build around and you can build all kinds of different worlds for different platforms and different consumers and different mindsets and different occasions, just like a movie studio, just like Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. right? But how do you do that in a way that's all connected to the same core traits, ideas, thematics, mm -hmm. you know, right? Like if you nail that up top, then all the individual scripts and offshoots of that have the power of the core idea. And I think that gets missed. And I think that's where the kind of taking the brand equity of these brands and translating it as story IP into all these different Silicon Valley mediums mm -hmm. is really kind of where the next level of this goes. And the question is who's suited to do that, right? Yeah. The different skill set. That's not an advertising skill set mm. that's been traditionally taught. And then if you can do that, now you can start to really monetize and optimize those funnels and everything's going to go down the funnel better. But I think it's just a mindset shift and really under, you know, where do you put the priority of how you tell these stories and what kind of stories are you going to tell? It's interesting. I'm starting to see that grand narrative model, that story IP model that you've come up with. I see that in um, progressive insurance. You know, I'm, I'm seeing kind of multiple storylines, you know, and I, I'm not sure I'm always clear how it's all stitched together, but yeah. I'm kind of seeing that's, it feels like a Hollywood model. It does. I, I may butcher this, but, but I believe Walt Disney said, I would rather entertain and hope I educated than to educate and entertain no one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so the idea is like, you see in all the categories that are all commodity based, yeah. right? Where they don't, you know, everybody wants to do products and features, but you get into certain these categories where you just can't do it. And then these brands have massive budgets and big creative companies, and they really spend the time to differentiate and entertain in a way that maybe they're not. And the insurance space is a perfect example, right? Whether the gecko or mm. the progressive stuff. And yeah, you're right. You're starting to see it there. It's still made primarily for a television mindset, but they're starting to think that way, which I think is important. I think that's the important first step. Now you have to think a little bit differently how you take that same strategy to TikTok or to Instagram. Yeah. But at least the initial pieces are starting to be in place. Yeah. And uh, again, it, it ties in with, it's funny, I, I was reading Byron Sharp's book, How Brands Grow, right before I read your book. Mm. Uh, and he's got this very interesting piece on memory structure, mm. you know, and uh, yeah, I, I always loved, uh, you know, speaking of great quotes, I always, and, and great quotes that we'll butcher, but uh, John Hegarty had that great quote, you know, what's the most valuable piece of real estate? It's the corner of somebody's mind. So as we start to tell all these stories and try to get this grand narrative going, what is going to wind up in the corner of somebody's mind? Can somebody, you know, stitch all this stuff together? Amen. <laughs> no, the, the, Seth Godin talks a lot about that. We have all the information that we could ever process, like all the data exists and all these brands have all the data capabilities and tech capabilities. But if it's not all stitched together for us in a story that the human brain can process, what good is it? Because even if we do process it, we won't remember it and it won't leave a mark. Um, right. And I think that's where when the story really resonates and you feel it in your heart and then you're actually, you, you can get people to watch something, but if you get them to share it, it's a very personal action. That means they connected it and they wanted to represent who they are to their social following. Now you're leaving a mark. Then the odds of that leaving an imprint that's going to be long lasting and opening a relationship are just tremendously higher than if they didn't do that. Yeah, no, it's amazing. 
Well, speaking of story, let's just talk a little bit about your story. So as you were saying, uh, your father had uh, the uh, the Doyle Dane Birnbach of Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, Staples and Associates. Yeah, my, my dad was a businessman. You know, I mean, he's a, he's a creative guy in his own way, but he wasn't mm. a traditional advertising creative. And it's funny, I, I saw that and I wanted to get into advertising at a young age. And I, you know, I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s and, and um, you know, I really, you know, wanted to go right for McDonald's, you know, like the idea of going to Burnett was really attractive to me. And it's funny, as I was going through that and I was preparing for that, like the one conversation I remember with my dad when I was going to be a you know, big creative was, nah, you don't want to be a creative. They're in the back room. You want to learn sales. They're in the front room. <laughs> And he said that, and I was just like so off put by that. I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, basically. Didn't you watch Nothing in Common, Dad? Tom <laughs> Hanks, he's in the front of the room. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 but it, it stuck with me and it really bothered me, honestly. And it, it was funny. I, I was making the decision. I actually had an opportunity when one of my professors, by the happen chance, was like the chief creative president at Leo Burnett. Mm. Um, so I had an in to go to Burnett and be a copywriter. And then also I had an end to go down to Texas and work with this sports marketing firm, which was completely different. Right. Right. And I remember like thinking about that and being kind of bothered by them, but just whatever reason I went the sports route. And I think a little bit of it was kind of that kick in the butt for my dad of saying like, Hey, you know, the creative side is great, but if you're, if you're only a creative, you're not going to be able to impact things in a way that maybe you could otherwise. And mm. It ties into some of the conversations we had, but I, that first moment for me was going down, hearing that from my dad and going down and choosing to get into the sports business instead of the advertising business. And the sports business, so you know, I mean, it's a much more transactional business. It's right. much more a packaging business, but it's also a business where creativity was in short supply. Mm. So it's like you can go Leo Burnett and be another creative or you can go into the sports business and maybe be a ways ahead if you have yeah. that same mindset. And so that was kind of the first moment for me. And uh, so you were down at the marketing arm and then yeah. uh, I was down at the marketing arm. So they, were, they represented professional athletes and then they morphed into working with brands and sold to Omnicom actually about 15 years ago. Yeah. So I mean, as a young guy, I, I got to touch all the pieces. We worked with big talent like Scottie Pippen and all these big NBA and NFL players. And then mm -hmm. I actually got to start writing some ads and some promotion and like, because we didn't have anybody else. Right. And I was the young creative. And so I got to do all this fun stuff. And, but I, I saw write this. Listen, I, I wanted to work at Leo. I guess I could do it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And, and there were a lot less layers here. Like I become the creative director and the sales guy at the same time. And but it was interesting, Rob, because, you know, as we got bought by Omnicom, then we started to work with BBDO and DDB and lesser extent TWA. And I started to see like the inside of that world for the first time. Yeah. And the, the good, the bad and the ugly. Right. And, and instead of being inside of it in the room, like, you know, scribbling copy lines all day, I actually saw it from the other side. And and I think that was a huge moment for me because I, I got to see what was working from right. the outside and what was awesome about it. But I also got to see kind of the other side of it. So then what happened? Then when did shareability happen? Yeah. So the next step is after after the earnout with Omnicom, I went on my own. I was like, all right, I'm going to go do what we were doing in sports. We're going to have to do it in entertainment. And so I moved from Dallas, Texas to Los Angeles. No business plan, no nothing, but I'm just going to go do it. Right. And so anyway, I got, I kind of had a period. I got like a poor man's Forrest Gump career where I was just, I had a way of kind of finding and packaging my way into a bunch of really ridiculous and interesting and sometimes awesome stuff and sometimes 
terrible, but, but it all led to like, I kind of uncovered this model in the brand business with Hollywood and had like the connection point. Mm. And I was doing all these interesting things where I was bringing celebrity and, and studios and brands together in an interesting way. Mm. And then when the recession happened in like 2008, all the Hollywood money dried up for a couple of years. And so it gave me an opportunity to bring this brand money in and start to underwrite all these things that brands had never really underwritten before. Mm. And I created this whole kind of promotional event model where I was using brand money to underwrite these big Hollywood events and all these promotional activities. And mm. it all kind of, I'll keep it short, but I basically, as this escalated up, I took over a beach house in Malibu for the summer and threw 40 celebrity events in 60 days, <laughs> all underwritten by brand money. It was called the LG house. And I had, man, it was crazy. I, you know, Jamie Foxx, the Kardashians early days, Sylvester Stallone, the cast of The Office. By the way, I have this image. Miley Cyrus. I, I had this image of the uh, the house at uh, in the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was a much more sanitized version of that. But it was cool. Like I would go to the talent, and go, "Hey, Jamie Fox, you're launching your Sirius satellite radio show. Mm. Sirius doesn't want to pay for it. We'll pay for it. We've got to set up a twenty million dollar beach house on on the water. We've got the red carpet. We've got the valet. We've got the food. We'll cover it all. But in return, I need X, Y, and Z from you." For the brand, right. and we just did a straight barter deal, and it was awesome, man. It was hard to get it up, and once it went, like I had so many celebrities mm. in studios, and so the, the second key point I think in my career was sitting at this house <laughs> in the middle of July uh, in like 2009, and seeing for the first time these celebrities, these young stars like Miley and the Kardashian and the Hills and all these groups that were using social media for the first time. Mm. And, and it was early days, you know, it was MySpace and early days of Facebook, but it just blew me away hmm. that they had this direct access point to millions of people that was outside of all the studios, all the networks. They had the bullhorn for the first time. And right. I was like, I just sat there every day. I was like, oh my God, this is it. Like I, whatever I'm doing now doesn't matter. Like I'm going to go do this. I don't know what this is, but I'm going to go do this. Hmm. So after your dad, Kim Kardashian is your next biggest. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. We went from Jim Staples to Kim Kardashian. And so now shareability. So what, what could you tell yeah, us uh, so, about so The third point um, was this company, Converge, that I'd started was running. It was doing pretty well. But I got introduced to these young guys in Utah. I call it the Mormon Mafia. Oh, yeah. Uh, these young guys were just crushing it on YouTube and like behind the scenes of all these big viral hits. And I got to know him, this young guy named Cameron Manwaring. Mm. Brilliant young guys. And they were basically reverse engineering virality on YouTube mm. and how these things went out and all the connection points that would make something go viral from the digital media to the influencers that would pick it up to the right places at the right time and how that ignition looked. And it just blew me away. Mm. It's zero business model. They didn't know what to do with it. But I was just like, it was like the holy grail. Like everything I'd been building up to was like, this is it. Wow. And so we, we partnered up and basically acquired that company. And that was kind of the ignition point for shareability is like, how do we take the, all these things I've learned about, you know, the sports business and the entertainment business and around influence and now social media. And then how do we marry that to this kind of mm. almost engineer like mindset to how you create this shareable content and put it out in the world. Amazing. And that was where it all just kind of came together. Yeah. So you kind of brought brand and packaging and audience to content, to the making. That's right. And then hundred percent. And then the engineer, how do we reverse engineer virality perspective. Because when you're that tied into kind of the base level of how this stuff works, the learnings are just crazy. Wow. And and it, and the algorithms change. And you have to be that close because if you're not, you're never going to be on top of it all. Hmm. 
All right. Well, I've got my advice question for you. Yeah. What do you tell a young person who wants to be a copywriter in 2021? What should they do? I tell them the same thing I would tell a CEO, which is don't think like Unilever, think like Disney. I'm a big believer that like story is going to like rule the world and whoever tells the best story is going to win the next 20 years. So the idea of this kind of Unilever like approach, nothing against them to like, how do I get share of mine through repetition? I, I think it's the wrong approach. And I think that the people that really win are going to understand how to take more of a Hollywood mindset, a Disney mindset. Like if you're familiar, like Walt Disney sketched it all out, you know, 1957. 1957. That is the best piece of uh, corporate synergy I've ever seen. It's amazing. He, he, he put a mouse in the middle and he, he built the empire and he knew it because he knew the power of the stories he would tell around that mouse would touch people's hearts. And then he would be able to go sell whatever commerce he wanted to. And it's the same reason, by the way, that Tesla can sell you tequila, right? Because you believe in the story of Tesla. And so them selling you tequila actually isn't weird to you because you believe. Like these are like these Apple-like brands, right? Like the people believe so strongly, they can really sell you anything. So it's not about the product. It's about the story. It's about the dream. And if you can do that, young copywriter, like learn that capability to think big and then learn the tactical side about how to take those big dreams and ideas and apply them to the Silicon Valley delivery system, which is very specific and always evolving. And if you can marry those two worlds of story and commerce and delivery, you know, that to me is where all the gold is. Hollywood story, Silicon Valley delivery, that is Madison Avenue. (laughs) Buddy, I could talk to you all day. That was great, but we're out of time. So I can't, Tim Staples, I can't thank you enough. And uh, your book, Break Through the Noise, is excellent. People, if you're in our business today, you need to read this book tonight. Thanks, Rob, man. I've I've always been impressed by you and a creative that took on a leadership position. It it strikes up everything my dad told me early on. And I think we need more people like you that understand the big picture and the creative vision. And I think that's what's gonna save advertising, man. So I'm I'm really impressed and proud of what what you've accomplished and and, and really appreciate you spending the time. You got it, I hope so. Thanks, man, we appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Disruptor Series podcast, Adweek's Agency Podcast of the Year. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashydayny.com.